for me, it's no, this might sound really bad. Like just like go home and like, I don't know, make a hot pocket. And like, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm good. Oh, it's always like, usually after work, I just go grab some soju and soju and with like clam soup with a little bit of sujebi, like some dough in there. That's it. That will end the night. Just drink your soju and drink a little clam soup that has a little big like spice kick to it. And I think that's good. That's, that's how I end my night. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome back to Flavors Unknown, your go-to podcast for a deep dive into the captivating world of food, beverage, and hospitality. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Today, we bring you the highly anticipating second part of our panel discussion from the Star Chefs New York City event featuring the rising stars of the culinary scene. This episode is sponsored by the Food and Beverage Division of Simrise North America. Simrise elevates everyday experience for the whole family by creating inspiring fragrance flavor, natural nutrition, and cosmetic ingredient solutions. In the first episode, I had the privilege of moderating a thought-provoking conversation with five esteemed culinary professionals, Jeremy Stone of Contra, Trick Brown from Winson, Rafik Salim from Rollo's, pastry chef Celia Lee from Novo, and mixologist Matt Raisin from Alcoro. Their insights on trends and experiences in the industry left us wanting more, and I am sure you felt the same way. In the second episode, we'll continue our discussion with these Brian minds as they delve deeper into their creative processes, the importance of sustainability and community, and the challenges they have faced in their careers. We also touched on the evolving relationship between technology and the culinary world, as well as the impact of the current socio-political climate on the food and beverage industry. So grab a snack, find a comfortable seat, and join us as we embark on another enlightening journey with the brightest stars of the New York City culinary scene. Get ready to be inspired and entertained in the latest episode of Flavors Unknown. So let's talk about the, uh, you know, the creative aspect of, of your job. So how do you approach like, a new dish or like, a new drink you know, on, on the menu or new, a new dessert? What's the first step? Usually for me, it, it starts with everything sort of has some sort of personal association with it, whether it be a, like a food memory from when I was younger or some dish Howard, my business partner, and I cooked way back when or something like that, or just something. It has to have, start with something familiar to either myself, somebody else, or other people. At least at, at Rolos, we strive to not... I mean, it kind of goes back to what, what you were saying with like the margarita not be challenging, you know? 
Like, and no one should read the menu and be like, what is that? Or, or, or like really like lean into it and just name something like war style potatoes. And then that's an automatic discussion at the table or something like that. Yeah. I start with like those criteria and that helps like kind of, it's hard to just be like, cook whatever you want. You know, like I, I actually personally do better with like, but could it be sometimes cook whatever you want based on whatever you get in terms of the produce? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, we're, I wouldn't call ourselves like a seasonal, super seasonal restaurant, but, you know, we're not going to serve tomatoes in the middle of winter, you know, but all good, throwing jalapenos and everything kind of thing, you know? And so, like, I try to give myself, like, certain guidelines, right? I look at the menu. What are the gaps? What do we need to change? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? And then the more and more of those, like, sort of, like kind of restrictions you add to it, it becomes like the the choices become fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer when you factor in cost. And, you know, cost is like something like, especially at where we are in Ridgewood, like we can't charge the same thing that you can charge in Manhattan, you know? And so cost is a big driver as well. And then once you like filter all those things down, put all the restrictions on it, it sometimes it becomes like very clear, like kind of where what ingredient or each set of ingredients we should be using. And then within that, you know, there's like, an, you know, infinite amount of things you can do, but you know, that certainly helps me. And so it's a combination of like all those factors and some kind of personal connection to it in some way, shape or form that then like, I don't know, like some, some, some idea manifests. And then I usually, I'm more of like a trial and error kind of. Very rarely can I like, I don't know, like textualize a dish in my mind and be like, oh yeah, that that's it, perfect. And just write it down and hand it to someone or something like that, do this. Generally, I'll just like make like one thing and then I'm like, okay, that that's good. And then like what works with that one thing, that's good. And then kind of go from there. Very, 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 very rarely am I like, this is the dish. I make it and it's perfect and it's done. Like, like almost. Yeah. I mean, I never. Think, I think a lot know? of chefs in here, it's going to be a lot of iteration, you know. Very, very like so. trial, trial and error for me. Treg, let's maybe use an example of one of my favorite dish on your menu that was setting from day one, which is your. Eggplant. They all know about it. <laughs> we tasted it yesterday. Your eggplant, like the Friday plant dish. So what was the inspiration behind it? You remember? Way back then? Yeah. I mean, I, I really wanted like a substantial... We wanted to have like a... It's, it's not very exciting. It, we, come on. Make we, it exciting. It, Tell it, the story. Come on. We, we <laughs> wanted to have... I, I wanted to make sure vegetarians, you know... I never have set out to like take care of vegetarians on the menu necessarily, but I didn't want to be exclusive to vegetarians. And we, you know, we have a pork heavy menu, you know, beef, chicken. It's like, it's a, you know, I just wanted to make sure there was a big appetizer where a vegetarian could totally be happy eating, eating that. And uh, I think at the time, a lot of people were serving like whole cauliflower. I think it was like a popular thing. And in my head, I, you know, I, I wanted to just black vinegar you know, gastrique on, on like a whole head of like really crispy cauliflower. And I, I did right before night before we opened, it was like kind of just greasy and like falling. Like, you know, I just didn't hit it right with the equipment I had. I was just like, I, it didn't seem feasible and it, it was kind of gross. So I, 
I always I had some eggplant around, and I I I wanted to do. I love the the small bites like the shoutsa in Taiwan, the eggplant dishes at the markets. You know that you eat next to like baby squid or like pig ear or like you know there these just steamed eggplant. You know bowls of like cold eggplant. You know, so I was like, oh, maybe if we like you know fried the eggplant the same way, it could like it could work here and instead of this cold version that I wanted to do originally. And I tried it, and it just like ended up being really good and working with the flavors. And, and you cannot you know, take it out of the menu now. I can't. Yeah, yeah, like it's everybody loves it. So I mean, uh, you know, it's funny. Like the everybody's favorite dish is like an accident. You know, so it's like the least meaningful <laughs> dish. You know, to, you know, my I'm trying to express the the di- the menu articulation is the impact that Taiwan has had on the friendship between my business partner and I. His family's from Taiwan, and you know we. Our friendships built from your barbecue time. summer, yeah, summer's yeah. barbecue, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that dish doesn't do much for that partnership, but you know, <laughs> it, but it makes everybody happy. So okay. I'm grateful for that. So Jeremiah, how do you approach? And so for you, maybe it's how do you approach like the the creative aspects? And do you think that your creative process has changed over time? Hundred percent. Yeah, I think. In the beginning, you know, the creative process was definitely more based on some of my favorite like combinations. And that could be from childhood to discovering, you know, I had my first non-canned mushroom when I was 19. You know, my first actually ripe tomato when I was 18. So like, you know, that being depraved of those flavors, the first time you experience it, a petit pois or something like that, it's like, it just means so much more. So kind of whatever that, that, you know, I don't have those classic combinations necessarily in my mind because I didn't grow up with them. So when I, you know, my first tomato wasn't with, you know, maybe, you know, mozzarella and basil as a combination. It was just like having a good tomato on its own and then kind of feeling like, well, what do I want to eat that with? And I was very picky when I was growing up. I, I didn't, I didn't eat anything other than meat, potatoes and, and fried stuff. So my approach for a long time was kind of like, what are these, what are these combinations that really spoke to me? You know, I used to work at a restaurant in France that we did a pasta with a mandarin oil and clams and a pumpkin. And that was like, a, you know, so then in like, I might come up with the dish and it has something citrusy based with some kind of shellfish. And then instead of pumpkin, it kind of evolved into something else and it became sea urchin. And then it became my own thing. And that was sort of how I approached things for a while. But then I find as I get older and the more I start to come up with ideas, they tend to be, it's a much more diverse way of approaching things, but I tend to pick up something and, and just start thinking about making sure that it has, you know, if I'm cooking boudin noir, I want to have something that helps clean up a lot of the, we put a lot of fat in ours. So there's, you know, something that cleans up the fat, something that balances out sort of that robustness and, and not adding more and more layers of things it doesn't need. And so if, if it's a beet, then it's something that is, you know, pulling a lot of flavors that aren't sweet to go with it. And that's kind of been my approach for a while is just kind of whatever, you know, there's usually a need for something on the menu, whether it's vegetarian, vegan, you know, seasonally, like right now, we got to put on this ingredient. It's start with that ingredient. And then we kind of try to, you know, I think about what, what should go with this that makes sense. And what's going to, you know, in Contra and Wilder and all, all the different places that we work on are, are each a little bit different. But with Wilder, I think of classics and I try to do something, you know, we have a dish that's like a, all the flavors of a pisselladilla, but done in an eclair. And so we call it pisselladilla and it has anchovy, olive, onion, but it's in an eclair. 
And so it's 100% classic in terms of my approach. And then at Contra, I have to think of something that no one's really done because that's what the clientele expects. So they're just different, you know, the approach has to shift based on a while there. I think people go and you do something too different. They're like, this is not what I, I'm going to enjoy. And you go to Contra and you just present them something that's really delicious, but really has been done before. Then people are like, I've seen it, you know? So it's, it's, it's definitely customer guest, guest based. Was it well. uh, an adjustment at the beginning when you had those two different, you know, platforms that are two different positionings, two different clientels, and in order for you and Fabian to adjust and to say, okay, it's not about only what we want to do, but it, what's resonates with that positioning and as well that, you know, type of, of customers. I mean, how, how did you approach that? In Yeah, in I think because we, you know, working? we... Because we entered in at a more affordable price point, we didn't weed out enough people who, you know, the clientele from the beginning was like, no, this is how I want it. This is what I want. This is my problem with this. Whereas if I think if we started with maybe such an expensive menu, we could really just do whatever we wanted and then people would be forced to accept that. But I think because it was affordable, we really adapted to trying to make things that that were more accepted. So just naturally like, you know, I had a hard time putting certain things on the menu, even though, you know, it's not that long ago, but like 10 years ago, just nobody would eat sweetbreads, you know, on the, on, not saying nobody, but just at our restaurant. In our, you know, in our position, not having any choice as a set, as a set menu, they wouldn't eat it. So we kept trying to do it and kind of force people to eat it. And then we just realized like, you know, kind of pulling back and doing something a little more familiar is going to be what's going to, you know, do a beef dish or a, a duck dish, but then make the combinations that go with that a little bit more fun to satisfy our own interest in doing, you know, kind of different things. If you like this episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast, I have a message for you now. Kick off the new year with a gift to yourself and get my new book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, published last November. You will receive a signed copy of the book if you order it from my website at flavorsunknown.com. What about you? How do you approach like a new a new dessert? I know this sounds really weird, but I don't really care if you like people like what people want. It's just if I eat something and I instantly think, how would I how would I create this flavor into a dessert or something like that? For example, if I love Baskin Robbins in Korea. If Michelin stars can give ice cream shops Michelin stars, you got to go to Baskin Robbins in Korea. That thing is like <laughs> next level. It's so fancy and they have the craziest flavors. And I remember this one, actually, it's a big example right now because I'm working on it right now. But there's this one flavor I recently tried in Korea and it was called, it's in Korean, but it's like, okay. And it's a show. I don't know if you guys know the show. Crayon Shinchan is jungle in Korean, but it's just this little like animated cartoon show that I grew up like watching when I was a baby. And he always ate this banana ice cream. So for me to like finally go to Korea and see this banana flavor ice cream from this cartoon show it, like come to life, I had to get like three scoops of it. I need to taste it. And I tasted it and it like blew my mind. It's like, is this what it really is supposed to taste like? And I'm going to make that as an ad dessert right now. So I'm actually working on it right now and I'm going to call it the banana kick. But 
from there, I think about when I make a dessert, I think about like kind of like the omija berry. Omija is a, a berry that you find in Korea and it's called omija because o means five in Korean and it has all the five flavors you can possibly imagine. It has like bitterness, it has sweetness, saltiness, it has all the five flavors. I actually don't like sweets. I really don't. I really, really don't. So I don't, yeah, (laughs) I don't really consider my sweets, uh, my desserts sweet that much. Actually, Chef JP literally complained to me saying that my desserts are too savory, but it's just because I work from my palate and I don't think about anyone else's besides my own. And I know that sounds really selfish, but it's because for me, I think there's a lot of people out there who don't like sweet stuff. And I want to create desserts that aren't too sweet and it has like different flavors. Like I need acid. I always need acid in my desserts, no matter what. To kind of give your palate a kick. I don't know if that's like the Asian thing when you have like something fermented or something. I need like acid all the time in my desserts. And I'm always also really into like molecular gastronomy, which is like um, the science. And, and do you see? Do you think that you have more freedom of being able to create oh, yeah. whatever you you have in your mind because there's no reference point maybe yes. for the customer here it's, in the US compared to you know the restaurant Contra, for instance, or you know other restaurants. So I, I, I mean, think if I, I come to your restaurant, I, I'm going to look at the menu first if it's certain ingredients I don't even understand what it is because I'm not familiar with some of the Korean ingredients. And I'm here for the discovery, you know, and I'm here that, you know, for inspiration. I'm here. So I have a different mindset. So I almost follow your foolishness of like creating, you know, something completely new on the menu. I mean, with the group that I'm working with right now, like the Otto family, they've never had a pastry team or a pastry chef before. So I'm technically working on all three of the restaurants, Otto Mix, Otto Boy and Naro now, but I'm mainly at Naro. And I definitely have a lot of freedom just because Chef JP that doesn't really never had a pastry chef. So he gives me the freedom to do whatever I want. And I usually go for more flavors that I normally eat in Korean cuisines. In Korea, the desserts aren't really popular. They're more of traditional like wagashis, like Japanese traditional sweets, but Korean style. But I actually hate them all. I think they're af- absolutely foul but i hate them they're too they're too sweet they're it's yucky i don't like it but it's it's also what i grew up from but i want to like elevate it in my own style and everything and i want to introduce it to people in new york city now that i can like bring these flavors here but if chef jp gives me like a task like oh can you create a dessert that goes well with truffle i'm gonna go towards more of the savory side so i thought of automatically like something like salsify but Korean side will be burdock, you know? So I made like a burdock ice cream. And that's when, for me, when I create an ice cream, I think about like the actual product. So burdock or salsify has a lot of starch, natural starch. So you need like a chemical to break down all the starches. So you, you would add like mono or like iota, xanthan. So it's more of like a scientific point of view for me to like figure out how to get this beautiful texture in ice cream with this really starchy product. So that's how I... Okay. So it's almost like you are looking to try to solve a technical challenge. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think pastry is all about yeah. technical work more than like. And what's in your mind? Yes. Okay. It's like, how would I how, do this? How are the consumer reacting so far? I'm getting pretty good feedback. I mean, we love it. I really? Mean, uh, I'm extremely happy when someone comes back to the restaurant just to have dessert. I mean, because dessert's a lot That's better. That's what we did. Did and, Baskin I mean, Robbins do a good job? 
Oh yeah. Well, here in the U.S. No, no, over there. The, with oh, the banana so, cake. yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. It was like there was something crunchy in there. It was like sweet, salty, sour. Everything we know about them it. if you want an introduction, you know. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it to Naro. So please, you stop know Baskin by. or Robin? Who do you know? Good one, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So kind of going back to your first point at the very beginning is, you know, I have a really, really unorganized mind. I'm just like highly unorganized generally in life. It's it's absolutely true. So I have to just to like chaos give myself a bit. Yeah, I have like a, a wandering mind. I'm always thinking, I'm overthinking. So I, I need to organize myself and give myself like a, a discipline. So the more constraints, you know, in my life or in my ideas definitely helps me. So for me, it, it starts by giving myself the smallest box I can really put myself in. So wipe out this ingredient, that ingredient, and figure out, A, who am I trying to you know make a drink for? And that can be pretty broad in terms of maybe I want to make a classic cocktail or I want to fill a slot on the menu that we're taking off or use a certain spirit that you know is popular at the time. And then from there, it, it can be pretty endless, but I, I need to first start with what am I trying to say with this drink? I never really will say, well, I just like these three flavors and I want to you know, whip something up. It always starts with making something at least personal to me and figuring out a way where I can demonstrate that to the guest and, and kind of formulate that into, into an idea. And then from there, you know, I try to find you know, a framework, you know, so my, I'm doing an agave-based drink. It's a highball and it has yuzu in it. So what's the best framework for, for that cocktail? So then I'll go back to classics and modern classics. And we have, I have so many books to refer back to, but I'll figure out a way where that will kind of work best in, in that construct. But yeah, it really, then, you know, the next step is, does this cocktail make sense for the program? You know, a lot of younger bartenders, they, you know, going back to my first point of making drinks for themselves, I, I mean, you have to make a drink for yourself at the end of the day. You have to like it. It needs to work for your palate. You need to, it's you who's putting it on the menu, but um, does it work for the program? So, you know, I run, you know, two, two restaurants and then a cocktail bar and it's, you know, the whole, the food is Italian. So that's the framework right there. So let's, let's stick in the Italian kind of mindset. I don't want to make a cocktail that doesn't make sense for Mel's, if you know, I'm in Mel's at the pizzeria, like I'm not going to serve them a bone dry martini. It makes absolutely zero sense. In El Coro, I don't want to make a cocktail that's like overshadowing the food. I think it should complement the food, but I'm not trying to, you know, blow out their palates. And then at Discolo, which is our cocktail club, you know, they're dancing all night. It's a club. I don't want them to, you know, be boozing too hard. I want them to spend money, of course. But so I, 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 let, I kind of tend to do bit you know, lower ABV highballs and, you know, spritzes down there because you're dancing. You don't want to hold a martini glass. You don't want it to break from a cost, you know, percentage. We've been breaking a ton of glassware down there. So I, I need to think about those things. But giving myself a, the, like a smaller box to be in, I think that competitions are a great way to have younger bartenders kind of get this idea down because a lot of cocktail competitions, they give you a product. These are the ingredients you have to work with. And this is the amount of that liquid you must use. So figure it out from there. Do you do that with a team, like internal competitions? I do, yeah. So we, we do R&D. We're doing R&D right now in El Coro. For the first year, it was all me because we were, we'd opened every three months. So there was no time to 
do R&D with the team. But now that we're, you know, a year in, it's it's a lot easier. So they've had time to kind of see how I think and, you know, the palette that I have and for them to understand the beverage program as a whole. But I, you just have to like steer them, you know, they say one thing and then you have to give them feedback and you don't want to, you don't want to discourage them. So you have to kind of steer their ship gently into a, into the way that you're thinking, but in a way where it makes sense and it, it gives them the credit and, and they're actually learning from the experience rather than, you know, again, being discouraged. So, you know, we do have a lot of bartenders who will come at me with, you know, random ideas. And I, I do shoot a lot of those down because I want them to bring me something that makes sense, that has purpose, that you know, they can fully flesh out. I, I, I kind of wait a while before I start wasting any liquid. My mind is constantly in R&D. So like the back of my mind always has this kind of creative process going. And the second I connect to something, I, I grab onto it right away, whether I'm on the subway, walking on the phone with my boyfriend, like I stop and I have to write it down. And if you see my notes, it, it's a lot like my brain. It's chaotic, but it's you know, it'll just say flavors or like a quick idea and I'll be able to remember what I was, what I, what I had got inspired by. And then I go from there, but I do have to give myself as many restrictions as I can. And I think for me, if I, if I'm stuck, I need to just like get away from it because I am a bit of a procrastinator as well. It's something I, I know about myself. So that's part of, you know, my process. If I do get stuck on something, I'll kind of procrastinate that idea and throw it away so I can come back to it with a, with a clearer mind and kind of go but to something I think else. It's interesting but listening to all of you that, you know, the inspiration and the creativity is one aspect, but it has to be within a certain sandbox as either because it's one of your three concepts that you have. And obviously the creativity has to be linked to that, the positioning. Same to you with like the different restaurants between you know, welfare and, and, and Contra, you know, or you are talking about that you are not going to put certain things on the menu because it's not going to be affordable for the people of your neighborhood. So creativity is one thing, but you have the execution aspect and you have the reality of, you know, the customers that are, you know, I, there. So I think and all for the me, it's like just disciplining yeah. that the creativity and the chaos that's in all of our brains as sure. creative people. But um, I think a lot of people... Yeah. Yeah, young at the beginning when they start, they, it's all about creativity because they want to put their name out there. And, and I have seen talking to a lot of those culinary leaders is like either throughout times, that's why I was asking the questions around your experience, you know, after a number of years. The idea is that, you know, I, I see people focusing more on simplicity, letting like the ingredients, you know, speak for themselves. And I see, a, you know, a different aspect of people looking at creativity through the lens of other, you know, constraints. That I, could be I think that's like what my chef always told me. They're like, Celia, it's okay to be creative, but not too creative. And that's, that's like something that I always, I always thought too. about. So you wouldn't want to have a dessert with like 40 components and you just like get lost in like what, who the main star is in this dessert, you know? Just at so, the moment, the cost of the recipe yes. would be pretty horrendous, but... I think I have like a palate of a five-year-old, so... So I want to give like other people to ask questions. So go ahead. On the vein of the simple thing we were just talking about. So I work for a beer company and on Friday afternoon, all the people that are working at this beer company are in the bar and we're always as of lately just drinking simple German beer. And like, it's like, we call it our shifty. We call it or whatever it might be. And like 
without fail, Friday afternoon, everybody has a glass of like a yellow-ish Pilsner lager in their hand. So in that vein, like, what's your lager? What's your Pilsner? What's your, like, your go-to simple thing? Food or beverage, correct? Read it, yeah. That's a direct reaction from IPA, right? Yeah. That's like, and we're, I have a wine shop that's right next to the beer hall and they're like, they have a crazy beer list and, and the owners are total beer geeks. They know everything. And I'm always like, what do you drink? Like, what should I drink? Cause I don't really like, you know, I'm hoping that they're going to tell me something very like not too high ABV and not too complicated. And, and they're always like, this Pilsner is like really it right now. And they're like, they're always guiding me towards really light drinks. And I think that's, it just depends on the, the, it's the reaction to what, you know, maybe 12, 15, 10 years ago, everyone was, was, was consuming and pushing. So for food, I think it's the same thing where, you know, we went through this big period of time of really complicated food and a lot of different, you know, flavors. And I think, probably what most people are, are craving both on the on the guest end and then also for those who are who've been creating it and in it are just like my days off are usually single ingredient restaurants like a steakhouse a restaurant like a sushi restaurant something that's just like i'm literally gonna have one thing and that's that's sort of what you know that's like that's my go-to i guess for that's my pilsner i'll go to like for Charles and have, you know, just like the steak and then like, you know, no sauce, maybe some, you know, some potatoes. And it's just like, but it's really well executed, you know. I mean, I have a couple of things like that, but. Your mortadelle. The mortadelle. The mortadelle is very good. That's Simple, good. a little bit of olive oil on it. Yeah, it's go. good. I mean, that's not, I mean, yes, it's very good. This isn't really like, I mean, I, I love it, obviously. We serve it <laughs> in the restaurant, but it's not my pilsner. Okay. Believe it or not, it's like, just like spicy Chinese food. It's kind of just living in New York city for, for so long. It's like Chinese food in general is like a, a cuisine that in my mind just makes no sense. Like I can't not, not, not no sense. Right. I mean, I know, you know, the basics, but it's like so unbelievably complex and the history is so is nuts. And like, and whenever I try to like remake something at home that I ate at a, you know, restaurant, Chinese restaurant or something like that. It, it just sucks. It's like, it's never as good. I don't know what, why I don't know what they're doing. And it's like this total mystery to me in my, in my mind, like other cuisines sort of like make sense to me and I can like kind of dabble in those, but not that. And over time, it's like, I love that. I love that. I don't understand it because I can, the only way I can enjoy it is going somewhere like Chinatown or wherever it may be and, and sitting down and enjoying it and just being like, just for the pleasure of it. Right. There's no like, um, what it is. Right. I don't have to like figure out, I'm not like dissecting it, but I'm just like, Oh my God, it's so fucking good. Like how the fuck did they do this? But, and I'm, and that's okay. Like, and that's, and like, as you know, when you, you know, cooking so many years, you know, and reading cookbooks and cooking shows and you, you know, you can, look up a recipe for practically anything, right? These days in like, when one second I can pull out my phone and pull up a recipe for something, right? But the, like not being able to do something is, is awesome. And it's like a totally different, like enjoyment for me going to like a Chinese restaurant and having it be like hot and delicious and fast. And like, it's fucking awesome. And I am okay. Just like, 
I do not, I am not going to learn how to do any of that ever. And I am okay with that. And why keep it that way to a certain extent? Yeah. Celia, what's your Pilsner? You know, I think for me, it's... <laughs> no, this might sound really bad. <laughs> like, Just like go home and like, I don't know, make a hot pocket. And like, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm good. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's it's always like usually after work, I just go grab some soju and soju and with like clam soup with a little bit of sujebi, like some dough in there. That's it. That will end the night. Just drink your soju and drink a little clam soup that has a little big like spice kick to it. And I think that's good. That's how I end my night. I just had a question. How do you see plant-based evolving on your menus. I know you mentioned the eggplant. You wanted to have a vegetarian option on the menu. That's how that came about. I guess it's more not about specifically like vegetables, but do you see a position for like plant-based meat, chicken, different things like that? How do you see it in the restaurant scene? Just in response to that, like to, you know, I, like tempeh is something that's really cool to me, but like, you know, impossible burger, fuck that. You know, like, I don't, who cares about meat that's trying to look like meat, but you know, if you want to eat meat, just eat meat. But if you want to take a nosedive into like some, like a really cool project that, you know, people dedicate their careers to, you know, like these are, you know, tofu, like these, there's really wonderful options. And, and inadvertently we've created a vegetarian, a highly vegetarian menu here in a, that, you know, sub, through subs or switch outs, you know, people, people that are vegetarian can eat a lot of food here. And it's not just the eggplant, you know, but I, I just, I don't like fake meat of chicken nuggets that are, if they're, I don't know, I have nothing against, you know, chicken nugget, tofu chicken nuggets. That, that's actually kind of cool. But like the impossible meat to me is like, I, I don't know. Any other thoughts on this? I think just the, the nature of this generation we're kind of like influenced more by like Alice Waters and this like a lot of lessons about going back to you know the th we have a distrust right from generationally like our our parents generation or what we were growing up on was a lot of like the fast food the remnants of like the boom of fast food and and these manipulated products that i think you know there's there's a distrust that we want to utilize the most you know also it's like uh, wiley is a good friend of mine and you know that whole generation of like of, of wd50 and el bully like we all look up to that but then even the young chefs now i know they're not familiar with with that whole movement and i think that because so many people were were like no we just have to use vegetables you know for people who don't eat meat and we have to use these things that are a little bit more have a little bit more tradition and history and looking at other cultures that, that have been feeding vegans and vegetarians for so long. It's just, I think that it's hard for a lot of chefs to, to jump on board with. How do you see in the future, I don't know, the, the integration or the synergy between the food industry and the restaurant business? There's no way it's going to work for like, have you read, everybody read this book by the New York, the New York Times pick? It's like Sapiens, you know, it's like very, it's popular. Everybody's talking about it, but it's like, when my dad and my friend in Brooklyn recommend the same book and it's also a time I'm like, all right, fine, I'll read it. But it's, it, it, it's, they talk a lot about a lot of things that probably all of us in food are hyper aware of, like, you know, the, the pork industry or like chicken industry and how, and, you know, it just seems like it's irreconcilable, you know, the, the net benefit from producing enough food for people and 
raising what poverty means and what and how you know globally like it's just hard to reconcile the or reverse those things because some people could die you know if are you know of hunger like if you did but you know until like uh, until people start valuing it and there's no you know what the incentive structure it just doesn't seem to work well i mean i, I hope one of my friends started the startup and they're just about about to release a product and it looks like a it looks like a composter but it's a trash can that that dehydrates food and it's so it's like eliminating all sorts of food waste not just things that you can compost so it's not as restrictive and and they take all of the dehydrated food that's so much lighter because it's so much dehydrated so much more dehydrated and you ship it back to this company and they they give you the trash can with with shipping labels and boxes and then they they make it turn it into chicken feed and that's supposed to be like super sustainable because that's what chickens, that's what you have a barnyard chickens for. And, you know, they, they peck out bugs and stuff out of nutrients and, you know, you slop is for, you know, it's like, it makes a lot of sense, but, uh, you know, until people like start addressing large scale supply chain issues, like with that kind of creativity and, and maybe that could happen. But in terms of like what I think we think of as like fixing some of this. It's just hard. I don't know. I, I don't know. If- you want to add something? I constantly have to wrestle, especially like after the pandemic with the food, food prices, which I'm sure, you know, everyone here knows all about just going up like, just like crazy. We have to constantly, I'm constantly forced to make these, these choices with, you know, delivering some kind of value to our guests while, you know, being profitable. Well, yeah, while well, being profitable. Because at the end of the day, like, not to sound like too, like, businessy, but, you know. How much can you put in the, the shoulder of the customers? Right, you know, how can, not... How not, much can you pass into, like, the price? Where, where we are, not, not a whole lot. And I would love to serve more, you know, expensive, not, not more expensive ingredients, but something like sweetbreads or something like that. You know, it's an OFO, but it's still expensive. It's more expensive than chicken. It's hard. And like trying to be conscious of every single problem in the food industry and be like hyper seasonal and not use like an avocado that, you know, a drug cartel ships. It's like, it's just impossible. And like, it is literally impossible. We pick and choose, like we compost, you know, we buy organic chicken. I mean, does that even matter? Not, not probably not. Who knows? You know, I don't go to the farm. I don't have time to do any of that, any of those things. We basically, we do our best and try to stay in business. Whenever people kind of ask like what, you know, our responsibility is as restaurants or how we, you know, I think because we're so small compared, like you really have to think about how big, you know, any of these companies are, whether it's, you know, in food chain or whether it's the companies that, that develop product, you know, you're making some sort of chemical or, or some sort of agent that's being used in the food. At the end of the day, we're so far removed from it that the only thing I think we can do as small businesses is just like create a hospitality program to then, that's the only way you can really affect anything, which is affect maybe a couple of people who are, who are actually way more important than you. So if someone comes in and eats and they have a lot of power or they have, maybe they own a startup or maybe they're a policy you know, maker, they come in, they're like, this is amazing. Did you use any kind of plant-based product? Did you use any kind of this or that? You're like, no, this is just, we made it using vegetables. You know, it has squash, it has this and that. And I think if you can get someone to be like, wow. And, and also it has a lot to do with like, did they have a great 
you know, was, was did they enjoy themselves with the beverages, with the service, with the space? That's what we do. That's our business. And we're not like in the business of, of changing the world. We're just in the business of kind of creating these warm experiences for people. And I think that if we can affect someone who actually is way more intelligent and, and powerful than, than we are, then that's, that's kind of like how we can you know, hope that things get better. It's just keep serving the things that make sense and keep, you know, pushing that narrative. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate. Thank you. We'll, you know, <laughs> welcome your comments. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Flavors Unknown, where we continued our captivating panel discussion with some of the most innovating culinary talents in New York City. We hope you enjoyed the second part of our conversations with chefs Jeremy Stone from Contra, Trick Brown from Winson, Rafik Salin from Rolos, pastry chef Celia Lee from Novo, and mixologist Matt Raisin from Alcoro, as they share even more insights and personal experiences from their journeys in the food, beverage, and hospitality industry. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow Flavors Unknown on your preferred podcast platform and leave us a review. We also love to hear any suggestions or feedback you might have for us. In our next episode, get ready for an exclusive conversation with pastry chef Jazine Bullock-Prado, sister of the actress Sandra Bullock. Jazine will discuss her new cookbook, My Vermont Table, Recipes for All Six Seasons, and share some delightful stories and recipes inspired by her home state. So until next time, keep your palate adventurous and your curiosity insatiable as we continue to explore the world of flavors unknown. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.